I listen to the diaries because it sparks ideas for new adventures. Whether it is an episode about an epic adventure or a backyard micro-adventure, I start thinking about my next adventure. I'm inspired by the people and their stories to go a little farther and dig a little deeper. If you want to add more spark to your adventurous ideas, consider subscribing to the Diaries Plus today. I'm Crystal, a longtime listener from the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains in North Carolina. Thanks to everyone who has subscribed to the Diaries Plus. It's been awesome, and you're powering the show as we move into the future. If you're interested in subscribing today, there's a link in the show notes. Please join. Now, on to the show. Cordelia. Hello. You ready for a pop quiz? Oh, God. Favorite teacher from growing up. Go. Ooh, Mrs. Burby. She was the best ever. She was so spunky, and every time she would read aloud to us, she just had the most incredible voices. And she's the kind of teacher that pushed us really hard, but you, as a student, you never realized you were being pushed, if that makes sense. It was always fun. I'm pretty sure I would have gone to school on the weekends if she'd offered it. I loved her so much. But what about you? Who are your favorite teachers? Um, mine are Mr. Greco and Miss Jones. I don't have to think about it. It's like comes out of my mouth so quick. They both made me believe that not only could I be a writer, but that I would probably be good at it if I worked really hard and applied myself. Um, all right. Next question for you. Did you like school? I mean, yeah. I feel like you should know I'm kind of a nerd by now. But I also struggled with it. I mean, I remember being in middle school and staring out the window on the most immaculate bluebird day I'd ever seen in my life and just wanting to scream. I feel like I learned so much from moving and the land and people and sometimes being stuck inside a classroom just felt completely wrong. But what about you? Um, I would say aspects of it. I mean, I was I was good at school, I but I definitely did not love it. I had this feeling that there was so much that you couldn't learn just from a book about people, about relationships, about community, about success, and ultimately really about myself. Mm-hmm. Well, do you feel like you lost faith in traditional school learning? <laughs> no, but uh, funny story. I remember the first time I dropped Tep off at school. I'm driving there. He's got his lunchbox and the new backpack, and he's, like, totally excited. And I'm trying to be positive, but out of, like, nowhere, Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall comes on in my head. Like, it just turns on, and I'm like, hey, teacher, leave those kids alone. You know, and I'm like, walk in and take them in, and, like, meanwhile, I'm just like, all in all, just a... Another brick in the wall. Yeah. But teachers, they are incredible. So, I yes, I have faith in it. Um, I just think it's one type of learning for a particular setting. I guess I don't really think it's totally reflective of what happens when you leave the walls of a school and you start exploring the world. Well, today we wanted to bring you a story about one very incredible teacher. An epic bike trip in the summer of 1975. And the lessons we learn outside the walls of a classroom. There are a lot of ways to learn in life. I'm Fitz Cajal. And I'm Cordelia Zars. And you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries.
Hello. <laughs> so that's my mom, Megan Hayes. In addition to her poise when her daughter sticks a microphone in front of her face, she's an incredible athlete, person, and mother. I'm pretty sure I was in college before I didn't get completely toasted by her on runs, and I couldn't beat her in tennis even when my dad offered me $100 for a victory a few years ago. Growing up, she passed her love for the outdoors and endurance sports down to me and my brothers, encouraging us to push ourselves on long bike rides, skis, and mountain climbs. I asked her where her passion for adventures came from, growing up in the urban sprawl of San Jose, California. Her answer wasn't what I was expecting. Mr. Hodges, her junior high school science teacher. He is like no other teacher I have had before or since, and I have been through college and graduate school and law school, and he was by far my best teacher ever. Ed Hodges, or Mr. Hodges, Hodges, or Haji, as his students know him, wasn't your typical 1970s public school teacher. In his classroom at Hoover Junior High, students would have to be prepared to roll up their sleeves if they wanted to learn. He made them tape their thumbs to their palms for 48 hours to teach a lesson about opposable digits. He set up a pulley system on a tree outside to prove that one kid could overpower 10. And to demonstrate the effects of surface area, he had one student lie down with a huge flat rock on their chest, while another walloped the rock with a sledgehammer. It's just very enthusiastic and kind of eccentric. He was fun, quirky. This is one of my mom's classmates, Linda Ferrison. He could relate to us kids. He gets right down to our level, and I don't think he ever progressed past that. <laughs> Mr. Hodges had a unique way of engaging kids in class, but it was his presence outside the classroom that really caught kids' attention. He rode his bike to school every day. Mr. Hodges pedaled in on his Schwinn Continental, which the students nicknamed the Tank, for its hefty frame and formidable command of the city streets, rain or shine. The Tank and its rider inspired a lot of mystique over the years so much that my mom and her girlfriends, who also rode their bikes to Hoover every day, requested that Hodges sponsor a school bike club so that they could go on rides together. Started with short rides, like we rode up Mount Amunum. We rode up the Saratoga Gap. 20 mile rides, 3,000 feet up. We rode up Mount Madonna. A 40-mile ride, 1,800 feet up. And then uh, we did an overnight camping trip. And, oh my gosh, what fun. You know, a bunch of seventh graders out camping. From there, the bike trip started to get significantly longer and more challenging. We did two trips to Yosemite. We did a trip to Death Valley. We did a trip to Los Angeles. Back then, of course, there were no cell phones. Parents had a vague idea of what their children were up to for the weekend and where. You were just unplugged. You were unconnected. And there's a certain liberation to that that we had at a pretty young age. 
it was just a big adventure, a big adventure, the whole time. More kids, boys and girls, began joining the club. When the founding group graduated from Hoover in 1973, they renamed the club the Hoover Lincoln Bike Club so that they could still participate in weekend rides as high schoolers. By 1975, Mr. Hodges had over 40 middle school and high school kids in his squad. We all sort of came together in this bike group, and it really did become kind of an auxiliary family for many of us. It shifted my life. You know, I was sort of a quiet, shy kid, but come seventh grade, eighth grade, I sort of broke out of my shell and found how strong I was. I, you know, I'd never been pushed before. San Jose Public Schools in the 1970s hosted kids from an array of backgrounds. Racially, Hoover was a diverse mix of Caucasians, Latinos, and Asians. Many schools had recently closed due to earthquake safety regulations, so kids from all over the city were bused to Hoover. Of the kids who joined Mr. Hodge's bike club, about half were white and half Hispanic. Some kids came from more affluent families. Others came from modest backgrounds. Regardless, they all dug up bikes and hit the roads with their cutoffs, sneakers, and the kind of irreverence you'd be hard-pressed to find anywhere besides a raucous gaggle of teenage kids. And then, of course, every year that went on, the kids would come back and say, hey, we want something even bigger. So then we started looking at maps and say, oh, well, okay, what about Alaska? Kind of outrageous, right? What parent's going to let their kid go with a teacher during the summer for 40 days to Alaska? Yep, that's Mr. Hodges himself. But you see, by that time, the parents of the students had already seen the proof that I had a reliable operation. Mr. Hodges and 20 enthusiastic students from the Hoover Lincoln Bike Club started to pour over maps. They planned the itinerary for a 2,500-mile, six-week ride traversing Vancouver Island, interior British Columbia, Washington, Oregon, and California, and then ending up back in the Hoover parking lot. Although Mr. Hodges liked to call it the Alaska trip, they would really only cross the state line of Alaska before heading south. He created a gear list a 10-speed bike, street clothing, a helmet. Of course, in 1975, helmets were flexible straps of leather that provided minimal protection, but Mr. Hodges had one for each student to at least conjure the image of safety. The kids did their best to avoid wearing them, as it made them look like total nerds, according to my mom. Hodges itemized costs down to the last penny for each meal, the gear, the campsites. The trip would cost each student $5 per day or $210 total, which today would be about $1,000. Yeah, we were just pumped to be going on this trip. Everybody, so excited. 2,500 miles is an ambitious distance to cover in six weeks. To make it back on time, the group needed to average 65 miles per day. Hodges made us do fitness tests to qualify. He did? <laughs> yeah. So we had to run a mile in a certain amount of time. I can't remember what it was. But he said there were three things that he required to go on the Alaska trip. Strength, attitude, and endurance. 
Oh, yes, qualification tests. Oh, that's right. Yep. And we had to pass a bike maintenance test where we had to be able to fix our bikes. One of the things that I set up near the end was I wanted to know whether we could do 100 miles in one day. We went out to Alviso. They have a nice trail which does a loop around the Alviso levee. And so we bicycled around there for 100 miles. Nearly every kid who wanted to go on the Alaska trip was able to do the 100 miles. They were tired, but they did it. Mr. Hodges hosted a meeting for parents to go over the route, the equipment needed, and the itinerary. A few days later, on June 21st, 1975, Mr. Hodges and 22 junior high and high school kids set off for Canada. The kids took the train from San Jose to Washington, while Mr. Hodges and his wife Ramona drove their van packed to the gills with gear for the trip. My birthday was the next day, and I was just so excited to be on the train up to Washington. We all stayed up till midnight, and I thought everybody was staying up because we were so excited about the trip, and they wanted to hear me play my guitar and sing, and actually they were just waiting till midnight to go to bed so they could wish me a happy birthday and then get out of there. (laughs) The kids met Mr. Hodges and Ramona in northern Washington, where they boarded a ferry to Vancouver Island. During their first week, they rode the length of Vancouver Island from south to north. Ramona followed with a van full of food, tents, and repair equipment, and would meet the bikers at their campsite each night. We had some very bad weather on Vancouver Island. I mean, it was nasty. It rained almost every day, and we only had two tents for 24 students. And we were packed in. I had my own tent, but the students had, there was a boy's tent and a girl's tent. We would have to bike in the rain, camp out in the rain, sleep in the rain, get up, and then the hard part, pack in the rain. And then get after you pack, get ready and bicycle from the get-go, raining the whole time. After three days of some good old-fashioned Type 2 fun, the group boarded an overnight ferry from Vancouver Island to Prince Rupert on the mainland of coastal BC. Then something almost magical occurred. We took the ferry boat over to the mainland and the rain stopped. And the sun came out. And it was almost like, I, well, where's the music? Once they got to Prince Rupert, Mr. Hodges and the students took a short ferry ride across the bay between B.C. and Alaska. It's funny that you guys call it the Alaska trip because you like, weren't in Alaska. Oh, well, wait, that was the mystique that we'd ridden from Alaska because it sounds so far up there all the way down to San Jose. Didn't we touch Alaska? We did. You took a ferry and touched Alaska and yeah. turned around. Yeah, see, we did it, Cord. Then they came back to Prince Rupert, cleaned their bikes, and pointed their wheels east to begin the journey through British Columbia. The terrain was quite varied. I remember the mosquitoes were horrific, and the riding was strenuous. But we, you know, we were young and fit, and we stopped every 25 or 30 miles for a snack break or a rest stop. From Prince Rupert, Hodges and the kids spent a week pedaling 450 miles to the inland city of Prince George. They stopped a camp near gushing snowmelt rivers and pristine lakes, taking advantage of freshwater bathing opportunities whenever possible. 
During the long rides, the kids would naturally divide up into groups and chat as they rode. But they'd stop at assigned checkpoints to regroup. I created three teams of people with three different major jobs, and those jobs would rotate. Now, the three jobs were cooking team, cleanup team, and camp team. And you had to, you know, load the van and unload the van with all our stuff that hauled our sleeping bags and food and camping gear. And Hodges was just incredibly well organized, and he kept us all going and in line. He had our food menu planned down to the last bite. You know, so many cans of veg all, so many cans of this, of that. Kool-Aid and tang and powdered milk. We never went hungry. We were never hungry. There was always enough that I recall. But, you know, I was a smaller person, maybe not eating as much as some others. And even if some of the kids did run a little hungry, Mr. Hodges always had a creative solution up his sleeve. At camp on one of the early days in Canada, one of the boys, Greg, approached Mr. Hodges before dinner and said, I'm hungry. It's not dinner time yet, right? So I'm thinking to myself, aha, here's a challenge. So I got this two-pound jar of strawberry jam out of the truck. And this is a hot day, so the strawberry jam is very liquidy. I said, Greg, if you can eat that entire two-pound jar of jam in 30 minutes, I will give you $10. So we all gather around, right? And he opens this jar of jam and he swallows it in three minutes. The jam is gone. And his mouth is covered with jam, right? And he puts it down and says, I want more. <laughs> and I realized, oh, wait, we better not do that. He's going to throw up. And no, he didn't throw up. And yes, he had dinner following that. Not to be outdone by their science teacher, the kids quickly went to work inventing a retaliation. Oh, <laughs> the worst prank that they pulled was on my wife. They faked an accident on the road. She comes around driving the van, and here they are sprawled out on the road. Apparently, it looked like maybe eight students lying down, and they got ketchup. They scored a ketchup on each other. And my, my, my wife, as she retells the story, she was at first scared and realized, oh my God, what, this is terrible. What's happened? And she pulls out the first aid kit and rushes over to them. And then they all get up, surprise! And then my wife almost slugged every one of them. <laughs> They were a special group that doesn't come together very often. They worked with each other. Uh, there wasn't much infighting. There was very little of that social bickering, which you, know, you would think that would be true of uh, traditional junior high kids. Despite the pranks, the kids were mature. They pulled their weight. They biked hard every day. They supported each other. We were old enough to have a sense of responsibility and commitment to the effort as a group. And I, I don't remember any of the kids being high maintenance, quite honestly, but it might have been just because I was sort of oblivious as a teenager. 
On the 4th of July, Hodges and the kids made it to Prince George. They celebrated with some firecrackers, well, until the police showed up, and then stayed in a youth hostel that night. Ramona flew home. She was pregnant with their daughter and had to return for a test, as well as for work. Mr. Hodges assumed van duty, and the next day the group pivoted south. They would follow the Fraser River all the way to the Canadian border. Those last days in Canada sailed along smoothly. According to Mr. Hodge's meticulous records, they enjoyed partly cloudy skies, a mix of tailwinds and headwinds, mostly headwinds, repaired six flat tires, and only got in six wrecks their final five days in BC. Oh, and almost got struck by lightning. You want to know how your mom almost got electrocuted? <laughs> yes. That story, after a break. Support for the diaries comes from Ketone IQ. As I've been getting more and more into longer runs and bike rides, I found myself fighting with my mind. As the miles extend, I feel like my reactions get slower and I make more mistakes, like tripping or falling or just kind of feeling slightly out of sync descending on the bike. On those big days, I've been using Ketone IQ to help my brain keep fueled and sharp. I want to have fun, not bonk. Here's the science. Ketones already exist in your body. When you push up against your boundaries, your body begins to convert stored fat into ketones, which your brain prefers consuming. With Ketone IQ, I feed my brain so my muscles can use the glucose I get from whatever else I eat on the trail. Riders of the Tour de France have been taking the same approach. I am definitely not as fast, but I can apply the same thinking. Give it a try. You save 30% off your first subscription order at ketone.com backslash dirtbagdiaries. Once again, that's ketone.com backslash dirtbagdiaries. The link is in the show notes. Please check it out. Support comes from Kuat Racks. The Piston SR is a single rail bike rack that easily mounts on most roof racks, overlanding utility racks, and truck bed rack systems. The dual ratcheting piston arm grabs your tires and makes no contact with the bike frame. So that's better for your bike, right? Plus, the rack has an all-metal construction, genuine Kashima coat, and integrated cable locks. That translates to being super burly. Kuat has taken their Piston Pro X and elevated it. Find more details at kuat.com. Kuat, because you will absolutely love this rack. Okay, here we are. We're bike riding, and we're just maybe 20 miles away from the Washington border. started storming and here I am driving the van and the road is perfectly straight and I can see the group of kids including your mom maybe 10 students in a group and this bolt of lightning hit right in the middle of the students while they were biking and I said oh shit (laughs) this is not good I saw the kids stop so I drove up and I said, what happened? And of course, they were all very, they were very excited. It was like an adventure. They said this bolt of lightning came down and hit the road and it didn't hit any of the students. And this bolt of lightning apparently hit the road and traveled on the surface so they could see the lightning effect pass underneath them and dissipate. Just in case they hadn't had enough excitement for one day, Mr. Hodges sped ahead in the van to prepare a special kind of border crossing for the kids. I wanted to stage a fake inspection, you know, where the border guards would be frisking the students. The border guards were compliant. 
Mr. Hodges snapped photos and chuckled as his students were halted and searched. And then later on that day, after we were camping in the United States, one of the kids came up to me and said, uh, Mr. Hodges, uh, that wasn't such a good idea. One of the kids had something that he shouldn't have, and <clears throat> we'll leave it at that. <laughs> it, uh, nothing happened, but it could have gone sour. Once they crossed the border on July 10th, the group pedaled into Washington. They camped outside of Bellingham, biked south and just east of Seattle, sticking to two-lane highways and back roads. They climbed over a long pass near Mount Rainier. By that point, the kids were in such good shape that they rocketed uphill. The trouble came on the downhill. And we were having water bottle fights. There were four of us. I was the last person with water in my water bottle. And Sean was chasing after me, and he was definitely faster. And so he was reaching for my water bottle in the cage, and our handlebars clinked, and we just flew head over heels. We were going downhill, not steep, but it was very casual day, no traffic, nice weather. And uh, then I got a notice from one of the students, hey, you better go back, we had an accident. I broke my wrist and scratched up my face bad and he broke his cheekbone. They had to go to the emergency room and get treated and cleaned up. Mr. Hodges offered that Sean and Linda could stay on the trip and ride in the van or fly home. So we flew home. I was very, very sad. I didn't want to, but Hodges talked to my dad and and they chose that I would fly home. So Sean, in solidarity, went home with me. I was devastated. It was probably the worst thing that had ever happened to me to have to leave that trip. I had a lot of anger toward my dad that he did that. As a parent now, I see, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was so upset. After the accident, everybody wore their helmets, nerdy or not. They spent a night near Bend and another night near Klamath Falls. In Oregon, the entire group came down with a severe case of some kind of unknown flu, which still mortifies my mom 45 years later because she thinks it was her fault. She might have forgotten to let everybody's drinking water reach boiling point, she confessed to me. People were so sick, it almost stopped their progress south. But we had this deadline. We were, we told the parents we'd be back on August 4th. And we'd wanted to try to make that so the kids decided among themselves that they would continue to bike. So what happened is, as they biked, they barfed. All, I, I, it was, I mean, they had plenty of water, you know, and tried to give them food. But, you know, it was more like, oh, I don't want any food. I just need water. So it was, it was a bike and stop and do the restroom and then barf as you bicycled. And I thought back to myself, I said... How tough do you have to be to pull that off? On July 21st, they crossed into California and spent a day regrouping at Mount Shasta, one of the two rest days they'd take during the whole 42-day trip. Then they pushed onwards towards Mount Lassen, where they stopped and hiked to the top. The kids carried Sean's bike two and a half miles to the peak 
to commemorate their injured friends. And that was certainly a testament to the group's power, that we, how much we miss them and that they would carry his bike up to the top of a peak like that. Louis Maroney, a student on the trip, kept a journal the whole summer. He read me his entry from July 25th from the top of Mount Lassen. 1.35 p.m. 10,280 feet, we're at the top of Mount Lassen. What a panoramic feast. There are partially frozen lakes, there are forest areas, mountain areas, and dry areas. Mount Shasta is visible, although it's 150 miles away. In the dry area, you can see volcanoes. In the forest area, there's a lot of trees and snow. You can even see what might be the peak of Lake Tahoe. The next day, California's summer cranked up. The high hit 100 degrees on July 26th. 3.58 p.m. We are now in Gray Eagle. Hodges is a little mad because we have taken so long to get here. In Quincy, we stopped at a soda fountain, and I had a banana split. It was really delicious. There was about nine of us, and it has taken three hours to go 15 miles. It's pretty hot, 95 degrees. Lewis and his riding partner, Gil, still had 66 miles to go to reach the southern shore of Lake Tahoe, where they would stay at my mom's family cabin near the Nevada border. After 50 miles, they reached the edge of Lake Tahoe, where they met up with the rest of the group. Coming around the west side of Lake Tahoe was very busy and trafficked and very little shoulder, and we all stayed together in a group in a line right on the edge of the road. It was definitely one of our more dangerous parts of the trip. When they finally reached the cabin, the kids were exhausted, hot, and hungry. After a cool dunk in the lake, Lewis and a few of his friends walked across the Nevada border to find food. They had a smorgasbord at Harrah's Casino, and it was like, oh my God, it was like heaven. It's like I could eat all I wanted. And I just ate and ate and ate. And uh, I mean, it was, it was stupid, but I, I mean, I, my stomach almost burst and I could barely walk out of the casino. From the Tahoe cabin, they biked south, cranking up two 8,000 foot plus passes. They passed Kirkwood and then descended into the Central Valley. My mom describes those last two passes, significant climbs in the Sierra Nevadas, as feeling effortless. By the end of the trip, I would say those students were probably in the best shape of their lives. I'm now at the top of Kit Carson Pass, elevation 8,574 feet. I'm ready to strike down on civilization. It's mostly downhill for a while. The scenery coming up here was pretty nice with a view of a lake over a giant ridge. After camping at a state park at the base of the pass, the kids had 85 miles to bike to Brentwood, where Ramona's mother lived. Brentwood would be the last night of the trip. When the kids arrived, they were surprised to find an enormous barbecue dinner awaiting them at the Brentwood City Park, a swimming pool, and, best of all, their friends Linda and Sean. Six thirty a.m. Zero day. Here it is. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, 
Hold on tight. The city of smog is soon to approach. I hope I can hold my breath. Early in the morning of July 30th, 1975, the kids mounted their bikes for the final descent. Sean and Linda rode with them again for the last day. We bicycled from Brentwood to San Jose over Vasco Road uh, along the back roads as much as we could. 10.40 a.m. We are now in Pleasanton, less than 30 miles from San Jose. And we came down um, the local highways. 11.53 a.m. The Niles Canyon, yes, it was beautiful and all downhill. We are now at a park in Fremont. 12.18. I can see the brownish, grayish smog in the sky. It clusters over San Jose, only 17 miles away. And we came into San Jose. We knew there might be some kind of a greeting party put on by the parents. And they had some little banners, you know, paper banners, welcome back, bike riders, and that stuff. We bicycled into the parking lot. And I noticed that a number of the moms of the kids were crying in you know, they were very happy, not crying sad, crying happy. And they were so pleased to see their children. A news crew showed up to greet the students in the Hoover parking lot. And someone asked me what was one of the highlights of the trip. And my quote was, all of it. <laughs> it was just an amazing experience and so great to be with so many different kids from different backgrounds and that Mr. Hodges was so willing to give of his time and his incredible energy to take us on such a life-changing trip. He showed us what we were capable of. We pushed ourselves so hard, and he made it fun. And at the end of the day, we were laughing. I just so appreciate him and all he did. And I know he's done it for so many others. I don't think he can truly know how, how life-changing he's been for probably hundreds of kids, hundreds and hundreds of kids. I think I felt real freedom and I felt a sense of accomplishment and a sense of purpose and a sense of strength and belief in myself that I really have every reason to thank Ed Hodges for. As for Mr. Hodges, I was very proud of the way the kids did. It was amazing. Yeah. Did you know, were you aware at that point the kind of impact that you had on those kids? No, actually, no. I just provided them with an adventure. I, I know that they've told me uh, later on that it was uh, a major event in their lives. For me, it wasn't, I didn't plan it that way. It was like, oh, what can we do that's fun? Uh, and so that's 
what we did. Ed Hodges is now 79 years old. He retired from teaching in the early 2000s, but he still leads trips for students at Hoover Middle, as he has done consistently since that day in 1971 when the girls asked him to sponsor a bike club. Now Mr. Hodges hikes the Sierra Nevada each year with students to teach them about the ill-fated Donner Party Expedition, a group of pioneers that resorted to cannibalism to stay alive while crossing the mountains into California. He may have slowed down a little with age, but you might say he still has his spunk. My snacks that I provide are what we call cannibal cookies. Actually, I make them at home out of spam cut out of the shape of gingerbread men, and then I cook the spam in my oven, and I put them in special cans saying emergency rations for hungry students. Thank you, Mr. Hodges, Megan, Linda, and Lewis for sharing your story. Music today from Bradley Carter, Publish the Quest, Amy Stolzenbach, John Barry, Cordelia Zars, and Brendan O'Connell. We are excited to share Bradley Carter's latest album, Nice Impression. It combines music and audio samples of climbers and is awesome and inspiring. If you want to hear more, you can find links to all the artists on our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was produced by Cordelia Zars, Becca Call, Ashley Langholtz, and me, Fitz Call. You have been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in. Mm-hmm.